Well, we are going to uh, jump right in. So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn to Romans 8. Be in Romans 8, verses 26 through 39 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the back there. Feel free to go grab one of those, and that can be uh, one of our gifts to you today. Feel free to take that home with you. Let's be in Romans 8, 26 through 39. As you're turning there, um, I want you to think with me just about a few questions. Um, how are God the Father... God the Spirit and God the Son presently working in your life right now? Do you think of them uh, as being presently at work in your life right now? Or, um, or do you think of them as being kind of stagnant? And now I, mo- I know that most of us uh, would probably give the really good Christian answer here and we would say, no, of course they're not stagnant. And yet many of us, if we're honest, we probably find ourselves living our day-to-day without that being a very present reality in our minds. And there might be some reasons for that. Maybe you were, um, maybe you were taught that Christ died to pay for your sins and he was raised to give you new life and that if you accepted him into your heart, then you would be saved. But maybe it, it stopped there and it caused you then to think of Christ as basically your ticket to heaven. Right, and so like I did growing up, you, you prayed that prayer, you wrote down that date in your Bible on the day that you prayed it, but as far as you know, the work of Christ was, was kinda done then. And now you're, you're just left here to kinda wait it out on your own until he either comes back for you or you reach the end of this life. I wonder if that's something that you can relate to when thinking about the work of Christ. What about the work of the Spirit in you? All right, the work of the Holy Spirit. Is, is the Holy Spirit to you just kind of creepy, all right, out there just floating around, not really doing much in your life as far as you know, or is he really just for the, the extra spiritual people or for pastors and for ministry leaders? What about God? Do you, do you think of God as just kind of, I don't know, an angry dad, all right, just waiting to punish you for all of your wrongdoing, and so you think he's just, he's just relatively disappointed in you most of the time? See, when we think of our salvation as being only past tense, all right, something Christ did back then, or only future tense, something that God will eventually do in heaven, it doesn't really lead us into a life with much confidence or assurance in our salvation now which then won't really lead us into lives that look much different than the rest of the world around us. At best, it may lead us into um, some moral changes. But when we think about the present work of the Trinity, about the closeness of Christ, about the love of the Father, the inner working of his spirit, we are given hope and we are given confidence in their presence. And man, if there is one thing this last year has shown us, it's our desire for closeness, for presence. We, we desire it with one another because we ultimately desire it from our creator. And our assurance and our confidence for believers is that we have it, it's there. So just to set up today's passage a bit, since we are just kind of dropping into Romans, we've, uh, we've just come out of a, a series and so we're just dropping in here. Paul is writing to the church in Rome, who's this mixed group of both Jews and Gentile believers, and 
Just a few verses before our text this morning, he's encouraging the church in their present suffering by looking to the incomparable glory that does await us as Christ followers and how nothing can come close to comparing with how wonderfully glorious it will be in eternity with God. And for this reason, we should long for it. We should await it eagerly, as he says. And he shows us how we can and will, not on our own, but because of the current working of the Trinity, and that current work, that current presence, leads us not only then to a future glory, but a present hope. All right, so let's, let's read the passage together this morning. You can follow along with me as I read. Again, Romans 8, 26 through 29. It says this. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with us, with him, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord, church. Well, if we are not careful, um, we can easily make Romans 8 entirely only about us, all right? Nothing can separate us, all right? How will he not give us all things? We are more than conquerors. And all that is true and it is glorious and it is good and Paul wants us to know it, but he wants us to actually know the why behind it because it's even more glorious. He wants us to understand why those things are true about us presently so that we can live a life then of assurant confidence, not in ourselves or because of how good we are, but because we know and we hold tight to the reality that God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son are working in us and all in very specific ways. All right, so if you're taking notes this morning, that's what we're, we're gonna be looking at together in Romans 8. We're gonna be looking at the Spirit's interceding the Father's saving and the Son's pleading. The Spirit's interceding, the Father's saving, and the Son's pleading. 
Let's look back again at verse 26. It says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So what then is one of the works of the Spirit? Well, here it says he helps us. He helps us in our weakness. He helps us in our prayers. All right? we, we just learned about this a few weeks ago as we went through uh, a series called The Ordinary Means of Grace. And we talked about the means of prayer, which is uh, a wonderful gift of grace from God. But what about when we don't know what to pray or, or how to pray? What about when uh, the weights of this world are pressing in on you and you you just can't seem to see past the present stresses and sufferings of life? What about when a specific sin feels like it has just taken over and you, you honestly just don't have the words to pray? When it feels like your, your own heart just doesn't wanna play ball? And the truth there is, is that it doesn't. Your, your heart doesn't naturally want to play ball. Right, Jeremiah 17, nine says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I know, not very cheery for this morning. Who can understand it? But the next verse is very cheery. Says, says this, I the Lord search the heart and test the mind. All right, God, his savior, his, his very spirit that is inside us tests our heart, and then it knows the things that are in the depths of it even deeper than we do because it's the one that tests the heart. So Matthew Henry, a pastor from England in the late 1600s, he says, the work of the Spirit is to intercede for us in our own hearts, right? The Spirit, he helps us in our weaknesses. He intercedes for those with groanings too deep for words. Now, it's, it's important that we see here who is groaning, all right? Is, is this the spirit groaning? And if so, what does the spirit have to groan about? Or is this, is Paul talking about our groaning? Is this us groaning, humanity, God's creation groaning? I think if we look at the rest of Romans 8, this is not the first time that we've actually seen the word groaning here. And we have to remember that while Paul is encouraging the church to look with expectancy to the future glory that awaits us, he is doing so while considering his present sufferings, their present sufferings, our present sufferings. You think Paul doesn't have some groans? This is a brother who at this point has been beaten 39 lashes five times. He's been beaten with rods, he's been shipwrecked. He has been left in the streets hungry. And he's probably questioned in his mind giving up more times than we can count. You think Paul doesn't maybe have some groaning here? You think maybe these believers who were being persecuted for their faith and were experiencing great levels of disunity in and amongst themselves maybe had some groaning? Well, let's look back in Romans 8. Let's look at uh, verses 18 through 23. Look at those with me if you would. Kind of gives us some context into where this groanings come from. Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Well, notice here how Paul says, we ourselves who have the Spirit groan inwardly. Right? Paul's, Paul's words to the church in Rome were just as much for him as they were for them, as they are for us who experience and are experiencing suffering and trials and sin. They are, they are the reason that we are groaning, that we are longing for an eternity and glory where those things are no longer our current reality. This is not the Spirit's groaning, this is, this is our groaning. And the Spirit's work is to intercede for us with words of confidence for prayer in our groaning. And these words that he gives us, they're not just any words, they're, they're God's words. Let's look back at verse 27 in Romans 8. It says, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. All right, so what Paul is saying is that we can know the Holy Spirit who intercedes in our hearts to give us words to pray, he will never contradict the Spirit of God's word. All right, meaning the Spirit will not give you words to pray that go outside of the written word of God because they both become from the same God. All right, it says the Spirit intercedes for us in accordance with the will of God. So what this means for us is that we should beware and we should have confidence to shut down when we hear people saying things like God told me to tell you or for ourselves, I really feel like God wants me to do this when it clearly goes outside of what God has given us in his written word. All right, the spirit of God will never intercede in such a way that goes outside the will of God or the word of God. And so Paul goes on in verse 28 and he says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Well, I want you to take notice of these two different statements that Paul makes here in Romans 8, both in verse 26 and in verse 28. In verse 26, he says, for we do not know. And now in verse 28, he says, for we know. All right, so what's going on, Paul? Like, do we know or do we not know? What's, what's happening here? And the answer is both. All right, Paul is saying we don't always know what to pray for in our weakness and in our suffering and in our pain. But even in those moments, because of the Spirit presently interceding in us, what we do know, what we can know, is that even in those times, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, he's working all things together for their good. Now, what are all things? Well, you are very welcome for this deep, deep nugget of knowledge and truth. They are all things, all right? He is saying all things, all happenings, all your pain, all your good moments, all your bad moments, 
all your suffering, even that which we, we bring on ourselves for those who are in Christ, God is using them for your ultimate good, which is his purpose, which is him, which is his glory. Right, God is the greatest good that we could ever get, get, and therefore your greatest good, church, is to be like him and to be with him. And he is using everything in your life to bring you to this end because he's not just started a work of salvation in you, he is bringing it to completion. All right, this is God's saving work. And how has this work come to be? Well, let's pick back up in Romans 8, 29, which tells us how he accomplishes the saving work. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, I know that... Um, this part of Romans 8, it can tend to get a little confusing and it can tend to raise a lot of questions like what do these words mean or who is being talked about here? I mean, are these, are these different groups? Did, did God foreknow some? Did he call some? Did he predestine some? Or is Paul talking about the same group of people? And those are really good questions. And so let's, let's look at them. Well, firstly, Paul is talking about us here, all right? He is talking, uh, he's talking about Christians past, present, and future, and he's laying out the process of God's working for our salvation. Now, when it says God foreknew, this isn't like, uh, this isn't like fortune teller stuff, all right? He's, he's not talking about just all the people that God can see past, present, and future because, well, that would, that would be everybody and not everybody follows Christ. But when scripture uses the word new or foreknew, or quite literally here, new before, what it speaks of is a level of intimacy that one places onto another, all right? One, one example of this without getting too far into the weeds of it is what we see in Genesis 4, where it says that Adam knew Eve, meaning he took her to be his wife. All right, he consummated his covenant with her. He had chosen her for his own. All right, much is the same here with foreknew. All right, it means that before creation began, God chose those that he would set his love upon. And it says those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, meaning he planned out a glorious final destination for us, which is with him in eternity. It says, those whom he predestined, he called, meaning he gave us a new heart that would respond in faith and repentance to the call of the gospel of Christ. And it says, those whom he called, he justified, meaning he gave us the righteous standing and status of Christ for this time on earth as we are being more conformed into the image of Christ. And then it says, those whom he justified, he also glorified, meaning God completed this plan in eternity with him forever. Don't miss that last word. That's probably the greatest word in all of Romans, glorified. It's not glorify, it's glorified. And Paul wants to instill in us the hopefulness of God's saving work as being as good as done in you. 
that the God who's not restricted by the confines of time and space will complete it, church, as it has been completed. And this is a concept uh, that I know we can't fully comprehend. And you know what? That, that's, actually, that's actually a really good thing. Don't remove some of the mystery of the Trinity. Don't try to fit God's work of salvation into a box that you can just completely figure out and just explain it away. Let there, let there be a mystery to it. Because without the mystery of God and the Trinity, you're actually gonna be left with a lowercase g God who looks actually a lot more like us and there's just not that much hope in that. And we want hope, we need that hope. Paul wants us to see just how glorious and eternal God's outpouring of love in the work of our salvation is. He wants us to have confidence in it, to relish in its beauty, and to rest all of our hope and our assurance in him because it's his work. And so he proceeds here then with a series of questions that are meant to instill in us that present hopefulness. And so he says, what shall we say to these things? Verse 31 of Romans 8, look back with me. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? For he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And now what are all things? I mean, is Paul going, is he going all prosperity gospel on us here? Is he he bringing in some name it and claim it theology? Or is he saying again that these are all things, right? The very things that are presently taking place that are ensuring the security of our salvation all the more. All things are our suffering, our pain, the events of this past year, even death. 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23, you don't have to turn there with me. Paul tells the the church in Corinth this. He says, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. And so yes, even death for those in Christ is something God graciously gives to us. Even the very thing that came through our sinning and turning against him, namely death, he uses to secure our salvation, to bring about the fullness of his work of love. These are the works of God that he's planned for us both before creation began and for a glorious future. And because of this, we can have confidence in knowing that he is presently working them out in us now but he hasn't just brought them about from a distance because God's plan for our redemption, it's not just a list of things, it's, it's a person. And it's not just one who once lived or even one who will eventually live again, but Christ who lives presently interceding for us. So let's look again at the text, Romans 8, 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Man, how encouraging is that? To think about Christ currently present with God continually, that means forever, interceding 
for us, ensuring our salvation. This is, this is Christ's pleading. This is Christ's pleading for us. Over the summer, um, my wife and I, we took our son Thomas to, we spent uh, a lot of time at a friend's pool. All right, now Thomas, he's only three and so he can't swim and so I have to, I have to get in with him. Now when we get in, he, he clings to me like for dear life. Now, as I pull him around the pool, and as every good dad does, it gets harder and harder, and I'm trying to get him to disconnect, he knows that his grip isn't strong enough, all right? He can't hold me. But what he trusts in is that mine is. He trusts that dad's is, that dad's not gonna let him go. So is the same with Christ. If it were left entirely up to us to hold on to him, we could never. But as, as we sang this morning, he is holding us, he's pleading for us, he's advocating for us, and he does so forever. And this is what Paul is proclaiming to us, that we would hope in it. And so he goes on in verse 35, and he's saying this, he's saying, if that's the work that Christ does forever, if this is the God and the work that he does, well then who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So verse 35, he says, Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Well, because Christ lived a perfect life, took the entire punishment that our sin demanded in his death, and he rose again and he ascended to heaven where he is right now forever, interceding for us means that none of those temporary things can separate us from his love, not even death. God is using everything in your life, church, to ensure your salvation, that his plan is completed. Now what that's not saying is that things in this lifetime won't make their best attempt to try to block the love of Christ from you. Right? Satan would love nothing more than to block the love of Christ for you. That's, that's what Satan does. What this is promising is that he will not succeed. We can know this because even his evil plots that were outworked in the men that delivered Christ over to the cross to kill him ensured the eternal love of God to never be blocked from his chosen people. That's how we can know. Even when Satan thought that he was messing up God's plan somehow, he actually sealed his own doom. And this is what Romans 8.36 refers to. It's Paul's referencing Psalm 44, which points to how God's chosen people will face suffering the same way that Christ faced suffering, all due to the evil works of Satan, sometimes even outworked in our own sinfulness. But the promise is that our pain, our suffering, even death, will ultimately lead to our final salvation where we will be with our Savior who knows the suffering that we experience, who has pity on us in our failures, who's currently interceding for us on our behalf to ensure our saving. Matthew Henry, that pastor and theologian that I mentioned earlier, he says, the same way the Spirit intercedes for us in our hearts, so Christ intercedes for us in heaven. And why is that important? Why do, we, why do we need someone who forever intercedes for us in heaven? 
Well, because we, we still fall to sin here. We still live in this what we call the now but not yet, meaning we still have a sinful nature that is being slowly over time conformed more into the image of Christ, but we still fall to sin here, don't we? And so we need someone who presently intercedes for us, right? This is the current working of Christ and he does this in two main ways, in both his interceding and in his advocacy. John Bunyan, uh, he's an English theologian and a writer of a book called The Work of Jesus as an Advocate, says this. Now, I will warn you, this is old English. It was helpful for me. Um, I'll try to clear it up at the end of it. But he says, Christ as a priest or interceder goes before. Christ as an advocate comes after. Christ as a priest continually intercedes. Christ as an advocate in the case of great transgression pleads. Christ as one who intercedes has need to act always, but Christ as an advocate only sometimes. Christ as a priest acts in times of peace, but Christ as an advocate is, as I may call him, a reserve, and his time is then to arise, to stand up and plead when his own are clothed with some filthy sin that they late have fallen into. So basically what he's saying is that Christ's intercession means that he pleads on our behalf for our general sinful nature. And Christ in his advocacy means that he pleads also for our individual grievances of sin that we fall into. See, we, we feel our sin actually far more deeply as believers than we did as unbelievers. And sometimes we also fall to sin that hurts ourselves and others far more deeply than unbelievers. And we need and we have a savior for both. Well, turn with me to 1 John, 1 John 2, 1, towards the back of your Bibles. If you hit Jude, you've gone too far. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Now, John is writing here for the confidence of all believers that they may know that they have eternal life. So much what Romans 8 is about. And he says this in verses two, or chapter two, verse one. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now this is not a uh, permission slip to just go on sinning. This is John in step with the Spirit saying, I want you to have confidence in God's work so that you may not sin. But I also want you to have confidence to know that if and when you do, you haven't been abandoned. Even if you are left feeling like you have been. And why do we need to know that? Why do we, why do we long to know that? Well, because we all want to know that our Savior is not going to leave us. We want to know that he is holding us, that we are secure in his grip. And what 1 John and Romans 8 want to instill in us is that he won't. He will not let us go. He will hold us fast. And how can we be sure of this? Dane Ortland says this in his book, Gentle and Lowly. He says, because of the atoning work of the Son decreed by the Father and applied by the Spirit ensures that we are eternally safe. 
And through this last year of a pandemic, one of the most utterly crazy election cycles that many of us have probably ever seen, a nation and a people that are in the depths of disunity, we all want to know that we're safe, that we are secure, that our savior is close and present. And what Romans 8 reminds us is that we are forever held in his loving grip and so not only can nothing block the present love of God from us, but even that which attempts is actually hurling you all the more towards his presence. And I pray that that is as hopeful for you as it is for me this morning. And so what does this hope then, what does this confidence call us to? How should this change the way we live? Because if we leave here this morning just thinking, yeah, those are, those are some good thoughts, then we've actually failed to really understand the implications of the work of salvation in our lives. These things should call us into lives that reflect their hope, that reflect this confidence. And so as much of a paradox as it may seem, this confidence should lead to humility, right? Specifically, a humble love. And so that is, that is the main thing that I want to end with this morning. Confidence in our salvation leads us to humble love. What is humble love? Well, it's a love that, as Paul says in Philippians 2, counts others as more significant than ourselves. It's a love that cares more for the souls of others than it does about simply being right. And I'm not saying that we don't stand on doctrines that are essential, or we don't stand against injustices or preach truths of scripture. We do, we do those things. But do you know that you can do those things and you can be right and you can be truthful and you can be pragmatic and do it in an ugly and unloving and non-God honoring way? And who really cares about the truths that we know when we're not living like we actually believe them? People need to see that we have the love of Christ in us and they will only see that through the ways that we show them that love. All right, that's, that's not just something that we want to get through so that we can go do the real work. That is the real work. And what does this look, look like practically? Well, it looks like this. I'm, I'm sure we've all had those bad experiences at a restaurant. All right, you know the ones where it takes 25 minutes to get seated. When you finally do get seated, the waiter or waitress takes forever to come get your drink and your food takes an hour to come out, and when it gets there, it's not exactly warm. Now, that is not the experience that that restaurant should be giving you, all right? You would be correct in that. You would be right, and you would even be justified in saying that. But you have some options here, right? You can, you can act on those rights and those justifications, and you can let that waiter or waitress have it, you can storm out, leaving no tip, letting them know that what they did was unacceptable. Or you could leave them a really great tip and show them some grace, literally giving them something that they don't deserve. You could show them compassion and maybe just recognizing that, man, they might be having a bad day. Maybe the cook is having a bad day. And in doing so, 
you would actually be representative of the kind of humility and the kind of love that Christ showed to us on the cross where being the only person ever to be fully right and justified, the only one ever not to deserve the punishment he received, laid down those rights and justifications to show us the ultimate form of humble love. Which one of those scenarios do you think would be representative, would be a testament of one of his disciples who secure in their salvation and rests in his presence? Matthew 28, 19 is a passage where Jesus reminds his disciples and us of his presence. And he also gives us what we call the Great Commission. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so the question here is, if the call is to teach people to observe or to obey all that he has commanded, well, then what has he commanded? Well, he tells us in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, he says this, this is called the greatest commandment. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and the second is like that. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And notice in both of those verses, Christ didn't call anyone in the Great Commission to go out and to just transfer knowledge. He didn't say, just go prove to all those sinners that I existed. He called us to love God with all that we have and to reflect that love to everyone around us, thereby teaching others to do the same. How do we teach anyone to love humbly if they don't ever see a very humble love in us? If all they see in us is the way that we bite and devour one another on social media, or the ways in which we let our political opinions and affiliations put up barriers of disunity that Christ died to tear down and put to death. If we're in a constant state of unrest because we are all bent out of shape about the next biggest conspiracy theory, how do we teach people to rest in the hope and assurance of a present savior if we ourselves are not resting in the presence of our savior? It would be like if I took you next town to Uniontown. I know I'm using a lot of restaurants this morning. I'm on a diet, so I'm just hungry. Um, it would be like if I took you next door to Uniontown and we stood out front and I told you about how great the place was. I grabbed a menu, I read it off to you, I described in great detail all the food that I've ever ate there and how good it is, how much I love it, and I just hype it up. I give you the greatest sales pitch for that place, but I never actually invite you in to experience it with me. I never show you why it's so good. I never sit down with you and show you how much I enjoy that food that I've hyped up. You'd probably start to wonder how much I actually really loved or knew about that restaurant. You probably actually start to wonder how much I actually loved you. The assurance of our salvation is about far more than just us knowing it. It's about us living it. It's inviting others to experience it, that they too would know the closeness and the confidence of our Savior. If we are proclaiming Jesus but are not living like Jesus, then we're just giving people a sales pitch Jesus. And this world doesn't need a sales pitch, Jesus. They need, 
They need a people of Jesus who are living and loving like Jesus, a people who know that in Christ they are more than conquerors through him who loved us, a people who know that they are secured in the love of their Savior and are thereby free to humbly show that love, a people whose confidence is set on the finality of the work of God the Father through Christ the Son and sealed in us by his Holy Spirit. A life of confidence in our salvation is outworked in a humble love which has been shown in a humble savior. And nothing can separate us from that love. This is the reason that we need confidence in the work of our salvation, all right? It's not, it's not just so that we can get to the end. Don't worry, we will. It's so we can confidently do the work of the gospel now in showing the love of Christ, the love that you have, the love that you can't lose. That's a hope that this world is longing for whether they know it or not. And church, we have it. And so Paul ends here with a reminder of the assurance that we have and can't lose. And this is where we'll end. Romans 8, 37 says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, listen closely to this list. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we want, to be, um, we want to be a people that both rest in the hopefulness of our salvation and proclaim your great saving work in our lives. And we do this by loving humbly. And so we ask you to go before us in this work as you, as you have. God, give us opportunities this week to show that love to one another, to our neighbor, to this community. God, we want to be a people that are actually living like Christ is in us, because he is. And so God, we pray this would give us confidence, the confidence that we need in our daily lives, confidence to love humbly and rest in the assurance that one day our salvation will be complete as it has been completed and we will declare what we are about to sing together. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. So we thank you for this gift of grace. And it's in him we pray. And all God's people said, amen.